The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic, along with The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball with Phil Hay from The Athletic. Just a heads up that uh, due to reasons beyond our control, that chestnut, um, the show will be dropping back down to one show a week in a few weeks' time, but you do have us uh, twice a week for the time being, so enjoy that one while you can. To read Phil's stuff on The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. What's on there at the minute then, Phil? Lots of talk, takeover talk, transfer talk. Yes, we've got a piece coming tomorrow just on where we're at with the 49ers and Radrazani uh, and obviously the follow-up from Villa as well, which was looking fairly closely at what's going wrong with the team at the moment. Um, and also reflecting on what was a slightly odd night because in actual fact, Leeds played as well as they have for quite a while at Villa Park. Shall we get into that straight away then and, and address that particular uh, that particular matter? Because I said to you over the weekend, it's quite been quite hard to sort of unpick the performances from the general direction of travel and, and some of the weaknesses that are kind of baked into it. It's strange, isn't it, that Leeds looked really quite threatening going forwards and were probably the better team on the night. But you can't ignore the fact that we were 1-0 down after three minutes. No, it, there was a definite difference between that game on Friday and, and previous games that we've seen. In as much as Leeds controlled the play, I felt, for a lot of um, a lot of the match at, at Villa Park. And quite often you'll hear Marsh talk about the intensity of his team. You'll have heard him speak before the, the 0-0 draw at Newcastle about the fact that in his view and, and according to the stats, Leeds and Newcastle, two of the most intense teams in the division, as he put it. You can see in the numbers that Leeds run a lot, they cover a lot of distance and, and everything else. Um, but sometimes when it comes to talking about them as an intense side, it sounds like a bit of an abstract concept because yes, they cover distances, but to look at them, they can appear quite soft and quite flaky and, and not especially dominant. But that wasn't the case at Villa Park. The pressing was very good. The energy was very good. It was up a level from previous games. And Villa struggled with it. I mean, I found some of Villa's tactics and the, their general approach kind of strange. Unai Emery has obviously decided that they're going to be a passing team who, who play the ball out from the back and do it real, um, religiously. But they've got a back four, and you see this from time to time. I remember it with um, Philip Koku's derby as well when they came to Ellen Road. You've got a back four who don't look comfortable doing that. So they're being asked to spread the ball around. But actually, they look as if when, when it come, possession comes to them in tight spaces, they're, they're anxious, they're tense. They, they don't really have the confidence to um, to play through the lines and, and to find the kind of narrow passing lanes that you have to. And Leeds were, without being brilliant at it, Leeds were pretty good at squeezing them. And it did stop Villa being able, for large periods, being able to, to play out of their half. And... You know, Leeds had a lot of chances, created a fair amount. There was fantastic save from Martinez um, uh, that Martinez pulled off from Harrison in the first half. Harrison should have scored that chance, but it was still a, a top save. There was goal disallowed for offside. There was penalty claim for Rodrigo, which I thought was a, a fair old shout, that one. But as ever with Leeds, there was also the concession that you mentioned from their own corner, what was actually a really good corner, a dangerous one to defend. But then suddenly... You're outnumbered. You've got Villa piling forward. You've you've got Villa scoring, and and you're behind. And I just find myself reflecting on the fact that it's not the case that this Leeds team don't do good things and can't do good things. It's just that too often the good things they do are obscured by the things they do badly. Now, i.e., defending corners like that and and getting picked off in the way that they did. But it's hard not to feel sympathy for manager and the team on a night like that because they're not in a good way and things aren't going well. And I think when you play as well as Leeds did down at Villa, 
you expect to get something from the game or you certainly hope that you get something from the game. And it is that age-old factor with football that when things aren't going for you, they really don't go for you. And that was the night when Leeds should have come away with something. What did you make to the VAR decision not to give a penalty, particularly on um, on Rodrigo's one? Um, well, no, actually, I'm thinking of the Nonto one probably more closely because uh, I went away and thought, well, look, you don't want to get a penalty given for every bit of contact inside the box. But then you go away and watch what happened to Brentford over the weekend and it was almost identical. And I think that's what's frustrating as a football fan, isn't it? You're watching, you go, well, which is a penalty? And what's the what's the meaning around clear and obvious then? You know, it's all just subjective, isn't it? And it, I find it very, very hard to to understand what the, the thought processes are there. Those are the contradictions. And to use the Rodrigo one as an example, the, the only purpose for laying hands on him and holding him back is because it was quite a clever free kick. And there was for a split second very much the chance that Rodrigo was going to get onto it before Martinez came out. And, you know, that little pull and, and that delay shifted the balance in Martinez's favour, which meant that he was able to get in and make the save. And OK, Harrison then missed a, a good chance from very close range, but able to make that save before Rodrigo could stick the ball into the net. And and I'm with you. Looking back at that, they are the decisions that you feel like you see given more often than not. But then again, you know, having watched the the goal that was not given offside um, for Manchester United against Manchester City at Old Trafford on Saturday. There's a lot in decision-making of officials in BAR, which is very hard to understand and and very very hard to follow. I think... Even if the laws of the game allow that goal at Old Trafford to be scored, you, you cannot sit and say that that makes sense. You know that that scenario isn't doesn't lead to an offside flag, and and likewise with Rodrigo. You know, okay, the the decisions like that do get overlooked from time to time, but it seemed to just be brushed over pretty easily. And and that was one of a few incidents in the first half that just did not go for Leeds. You know, they should not have been trailing um, at half time. They they should have scored. One goal at the very least, I think they've done enough to be ahead at that point. And if you're being fair, you have to say that it was really only at 2-0 that Villa were able, with that bit of breathing space, that Villa were able to find any confidence to play properly. And I find myself sitting there thinking, you know, obviously we, we discuss week to week how it's going for Marsh and how it's going for the, um, the team at Leeds. But I think if Villa are playing like that regularly under Emery, it doesn't feel to me like it's it's going to go especially well for them. But they're learning how to win ugly, aren't they? Which you, you could argue Leeds perhaps need to do. It's a bit, it strikes me as a bit of a cliche that winning ugly. They 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 got away with the moments that they needed to get away with, didn't they? And yeah, they did get out of that with a win and they'll be absolutely delighted with the result. But I think to go back to that phrase that's quite often used, that performances catch up with you. If that is their standard of performance week after week, then it probably causes them a problem. And I think whereas, you know, Friday night, you're talking about a, a pretty valuable and, and useful win over Leeds. More often than not, you're probably not. You know, you're probably talking about the opposite, that you you haven't played particularly well and, and you suffered because of it. I'm not sure that performance on Friday was characteristic of the way Leeds have played all season. I think that would be generous and, and pushing it too far. I mean, Marsh said he thought it was the most complete performance under him that he's seen. I think because of the way that the the first goal in, in particular was conceded, it's 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 hard to to agree with that. But I do think they played well. I do think they played well. And he is probably right that if they were playing like that week after week and game after game, they would pick up more points. Do you think that's what he was getting at? That's what I took it to mean. And I know it's been used as a stick to beat him with. Was that a little bit unfairly treated um, in retrospect, those comments? Yeah, I think if, if what he was trying to say was that they played well and actually 
played as well, give or take, as most games this season, then then he was right. You know, I, I was saying that on Twitter at halftime. I was saying it at the end of the game. Those results tend to hurt more than than the games where you get trounced or the games where you you perform badly and, and get beaten because you come away feeling like you should have had something from it. And I think it is far harder to take as a manager when you know that you're under pressure and you know that you you need results. I mean, he, he got a bit of a grilling at the press conference afterwards, Marsh, but not specifically because of the game, really. I think everybody could accept and see that that they had played well. And, and he was asked about the reaction of the away end. There were chants of Marsh out. I have to say, it didn't sound like it was coming from everybody, but we were on the opposite side of the pitch and it was audible twice. And there was there was dissent when he went over to the, the away end. And and he, he kind of said, you know, I, I thought we might have got a bit more appreciation for the the way that we he played. And, and that's probably fair comment. It's just that I think all of us at the moment are analysing this as the bigger picture, as opposed to, you know, isolated moments here and there. And the form is not good. The results are not good. The table is incredibly tight at the bottom. And it is, you know, as always seems to be the case with Leeds, it isn't, it's set up in a way where it wouldn't take many results to, to pull them quite a long way away from trouble. But they are now two points off the bottom of the league. Um, and, and you can't ignore that. The first seeds of those, um, those marsh out chants, Phil, do you think that's going to be perhaps the catalyst for more of it if things don't go well? And I'm thinking particularly Wednesday night, we've got Cardiff and then even more so against Brentford. You get the sense, don't you, that Ellen Road could be difficult for him on Sunday if things do not go well. I think likely to be more difficult on Sunday than on Wednesday night. The Cardiff tie is very winnable. They've just sat the manager, Mark Hudson. They will be thinking very, very seriously about the priority of staying up in the championship as opposed to, to making progress in the FA Cup. Although, to use an awful phrase, it is a, a bit of a, a free hit for them on Wednesday and, and they'll probably play um, with with that mindset. I mean, you asked me after the Leicester game, Leicester away, whether I thought there was a way back for Marsh. This is back in November. And I said at the time, I thought it would be difficult because when the away end gets into that mindset and 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 starts to see a head coach and, and the football like that, it's extremely difficult to roll back from that and, and to get yourself into a position of kind of strong authority. Um, there just is that underlying frustration, I think, at the moment. And as I say, it relates to what's going on in the grander scheme as opposed to what went on on Friday night. I would argue with anybody who's, who said that Leeds didn't didn't play better than Villa on Friday and didn't deserve something from that game. They they absolutely did. But what are we looking at now? Two wins from 17, something something along those lines. It's, it's nowhere near enough, nowhere near enough. And that's why Leeds are so close to the bottom of the table, not helped by the fact that obviously the results over the weekend weren't ideal at all. But, Results over the weekend that are not ideal are, once again, the, the reminder of the most obvious thing in football, which is that you have to look after yourself. And that, you know, that more and more is what Leeds have to do. Do you agree that that discontent that, that surfaced around Leicester and then again at Villa Park on Friday, it's never really gone away, has it, because of the poor run of form? No, I, I, I don't think it has. The, the win at Liverpool felt different. You know, that felt like a big shot in the arm. It was a night that people could enjoy. It was a night when people could properly appreciate the way Leeds had competed over there and, and the result they'd, they'd served up. But more often than not, it's been fairly fraught. I mean, even the Bournemouth game, really, really priceless victory in the end. But hard to describe it as a performance by design as opposed to a performance which just finally came together when it needed to in, in totally 
frantic and, and desperate circumstances in the second half. And to that extent, I, I wonder whether that's where Marsh is suffering from the fact that the, the style of football he's going for and the style that he prefers is not based really on dominance. It's not based on dominance of possession. It's not based on outright control of games for, for 90 minutes. It is based on making the most of the moments that, that you have, you know, the chances that come up of being ultra efficient with them. And it doesn't give you the guys necessarily of a side who are who are constantly in control. And that, that's how I feel about Leeds. You know, to watch them on Friday night, I, I agree with them. I think if if they play like that regularly, then they do win far more games and they do pick up far more points. But sitting here now, how much confidence can you, you have that that performance is going to be replicated against Brentford on Sunday? And Brentford is the one, you know, they need to go through in the FA Cup. They can't lose to Cardiff on, on Wednesday. It would not, not look good that at all. But Brentford this week is the game. That's you know that is where they have to absolutely turn it on, and so that that is the question: Do you have the confidence that what you've seen at Villa Park you're going to get again at Ellen Road because they they haven't been that consistent? Well, you beat me to the punch there because I was going to tee you up with that question in that Marsh thought that that performance on Friday was was something they can attach something to, they can build on it. I agree with you. Yeah, I tend to to think you're right. It's it's hard to know still what you're going to get, but if we're to get more of that then great because that is the big positive isn't it from Friday because there'll there'll be people listening to this and say well why aren't you concentrating on the the excellent performance and it, and it was a good performance wasn't it and maybe it is something yeah, to build no, it was. but but Leeds United I think under Jesse Marsh have never had any momentum I think that's maybe the biggest problem they they had momentum back in kind of March April when there was I think it was around a five games without defeat and there were the wins that came against Watford and, and Wolves and that felt as if it was coming together and it might have made a difference for him then had the lowest reaches of the league, not and particularly Burnley, not suddenly started to turn it on and make the season a contest again. You know, Leeds were in a position early April where it could have been a cruise to the finish line, as opposed to the the massive and horrible tension that developed before that that game away at Brentford. But they did they did play well without a doubt, and and I do think there are probably some quite basic things that could help the team. I, I suspect the time has come to give Verber a go now at left back. You know, I, I I wasn't sure it was necessarily fair to single strike out for the the goals on Friday. Certainly the first one, it, you know, he did show he did show Bailey inside. Bailey was able to shoot with his left foot. But if you look at that attack and the process of it, at the point where the ball goes out to Bailey, suddenly Villa have runners going in all directions towards the box, and you can see in Strike's mind that that he doesn't really know who to cover because nobody else is there to um to provide support. But I think. Common sense tells you that if Ferber has been signed predominantly as a left back and, and as an option there, given Strike's form at the moment, this is maybe the point at which you have to say, look, Salzburg's captain, he's 24, he's a bit older, he's more experienced. Is, would it make sense to get him into the side? And and I think it I think it probably would. And you know, to a large degree, you've got to play the percentages at times like this. You've got to do the things that get you results, that get you that keep you moving forward. So that is a basic starting point. I think would be a good shout this weekend. Yeah, that um, charge back to try and defend that first goal. It was hard not to draw comparisons with the um, the all-out swarming defence of Wigan away under Bielsa. You know, when seven men surrounded their breaking attacker, and we, so we kind of got a recent like, frame of reference for how you should defend these things. So it's quite painful for fans, isn't it, to see it not functioning like that? Yeah, although let's not pretend that the defence was particularly functioning brilliantly towards the end of Bielsa's time either. You know, that was a that was a big problem. I think the reason why it it 
is an issue for Marsh or, or why it kind of closed the conversation about Marsh or, or doesn't turn it in his favour is that that was one of the things that was supposed to be addressed. You know, that was one of the reasons why there was the change of head coach was because defensively they'd become a big concern and, and the number of goals they were conceding was a concern. Um, it's not as if they're always wildly wide open and, and are conceding four or five a game, but they're not a side who keep clean sheets, particularly they're not a side who, who look defensively firm. And to use that, you know, that kind of old phrase about a side looking like they always have a goal in them, i.e. always likely to give a goal away, that is Leeds. You know, you do expect you do expect opposition to get change out of them, um, as Villa did on, on Friday. And I think what it means is that if, if you're conceding that early and, and conceding that cheaply, it puts you on the back foot and it leaves you chasing the game straight away. Um, and I think Villa's, Villa's ploy from that point onwards seemed to be look at some point to nick a second goal. And if you can, suddenly you're, you're totally in the ascendancy. And I mean, it felt to me that the, the second goal they did get was was largely against the run of play, um, wasn't born out of much, but it was enough for them. Um, and in the end, it was the cushion they needed after after Bamford scored. I thought Villa were lucky to get out of that game with three points. I think they'll they'll feel that themselves. And, and you know, it's, it's a costly result for Leeds because they should have had something from it. On Bamford, nice to see him back though. And and Leeds now with um, a wealth of attacking options with the addition of uh, Jorginho Ruter. Yeah, I, it's funny actually. I, I look at the front end of the team now and I do see a lot of choice there. And I do see en- enough, I think, for, for Marsh to work with on an attacking front. It's good to see Bamford score. I mean, that that his first goal since December December the 5th, 2021, which is a long time ago now. He'll, he'll be feeling better for that. And, you know, Created brilliantly by um, by Nonto out wide, who who is just the bright spark that you're sort of clinging to in this team at the moment. I mean, there's so much to like about Nonto, he, but he, he's a really clever footballer, really intelligent. I, I do like the way he uses the ball, but his energy is fantastic as well. It, it felt as if he could have run all night on Friday. And I mean, once again, a bit like I was writing last week, he was getting fouled all over the place, but it didn't, you know, it, it didn't stop him being influential. Um, I mean, you can you can sort of base the the amount of ta- attacking options they have on the fact that there is this discussion about whether Joe Gelhart's going to go out on loan, and I think the fact that they they feel like they might not need him right here right now, even though they they definitely want him to be part of the plans longer term, suggests that that they certainly feel in attack and going forward they they have the the choice that they need. What needs to improve is the defence. I mean, going back to the Tottenham game in November, our match piece after that was talking about the fact that the defence had just become dysfunctional and and was not working in the way that that it should have done. And, you know, for as long as you're conceding two goals a game on average, you're going to have a problem and you're going to be under pressure. And and that was the thing about Friday night was that Villa scoring so early let them frame the game as they they wanted it to be. And okay, they weren't brilliant and they had to soak up a lot of pressure and Leeds had a, a lot of the game... But you can do that when you're ahead because you've got something to protect. So the one that's got everybody talking, Phil, you mentioned him in part one there, Jorginho Ruter has uh, joined as a new attacker for Leeds United. So talk us through where we are with that, what's happened and how excited should we be, do you think? I must get used to calling him Ruter. People getting upset about Rutter in the same way that <laughs> mate Ralph from the walk was getting upset about Goikeresh, which I think is the correct way to say it, although we don't really need to worry about that anymore. It was a complicated deal, Ruter. Um, I mean, it, it it was on the cards for a week um, from the point where Hoffenheim had left him out of a friendly against Wolfsburg um, and then asked him to stand down from training um, or, or told him to stand down from training a couple of days later. 
it, from that point, it was very clear that Hoffenheim wanted the deal to be done. It was also clear that that uh, Ruter wanted to come over to, to England as well, that he was very keen on the move to Leeds and, and he wanted to make that happen. And it certainly suited all parties there to, to get on with it. But it took the best part of 48, 72 hours for everybody to nail down a final price. And and you also had the the what are now kind of like standard discussions at Leeds about who would fund the deal um, at boardroom level, uh, what the, the liabilities for this would be further down the line, i.e., you know, structured payments as opposed to an upfront payment for, for Ruta, um, structured payments down over the course of his contract, which runs to 2028. You know, you would assume by that point it will no longer be Radrizani in charge of the club. Therefore, somebody else is picking up the bill, i.e., most likely minority shareholders, 49ers, enterprises. So that discussion had to go round and round again. But it was. It was effectively in place by um, Thursday night, although it did require a bit more in the way of discussions over the weekend. But he was over for his medical on Friday, um, all passed and sorted without a problem. And the deal was done late on on Saturday evening. And I have to say, it's a pretty interesting signing, actually. Record signing. Um, So a very, very big one. But I'm pretty intrigued by this guy. I know a lot of fans got kind of twitchy by the, the radio silence around this one, fearing it would go the same way that some of the other more recent transfers uh, or attempted transfers had gone, you know, thinking like Hakpo and, and Bamba Dieng and, and people like that. But I, I took the silence as probably a positive sign, Phil, because you would have thought if it had collapsed at some point that there would have been a leak, be it from the agency side or from Hoffenheim or something. There, there used to be a point back, you know, several years ago where with virtually every signing, people would be saying to you on Twitter, what's the hold up, hurry up? And you would think, well, look, you know, you've got to go through the process of a medical, you've got to do all the paperwork, everything else. However, the difference now is that clearly people have seen um, in recent seasons deals going under. Um, there was Cuisance from Bayern Munich where he was here, underwent a medical, Leeds had a concern about it, so pulled out of the deal. And that was one of those where you were sat through the afternoon thinking this should really have ticked on by now. And then eventually it became clear that, that there was an issue. Daniel James, obviously, first time round from Swansea. And in the previous transfer window, start of this season, Bamba Dieng from um, uh, from Marseille as well. Um, not quite happening, and despite the fact that we were all expecting him to get on a plane. So given that, and given you know that, that kind of timeline, I can totally appreciate why people might have been slightly concerned that Rutter's agents and, and people representing Hoffenheim were over um, on Monday night, and then by you know Friday evening away at Villa, there was still nothing um, nothing announced. Obviously, there was the added complication of the fact that the entire medical team were down at Villa on Friday night. So when it came to his medical and you know final tests and everything else, they weren't in in the vicinity, and it did need a lot of discussion. You know, as I said, it, it did need a, a fair amount of hammering out to get all the the um, the eyes dotted and and the t's crossed and and all the numbers in order. But the most important thing um, and what had to happen is that it has been done, uh, has been announced, contract to two thousand twenty eight, and a very very big deal for Leeds. Yeah, and we spoke some weeks ago and I said that we'd reached a point where people didn't really have faith in the current ownership to deliver on what they felt needed to be delivered, but this has delivered. Yeah, they needed a forward. They've, they've got a forward. And you'd have to say as well that this this isn't uh, kind of obvious or, I want of a better word, lazy signing. It's not just the case of, oh, he'll do, we'll go out and, and do that. You know, this is clearly somebody rising stock on the, the European market that they've specifically targeted and, and wanted and have paid an awful lot of money for. You know, this eclipses the £27 million that was paid for Rodrigo to Valencia in 2020. If 
all the incentives and add-ons are met, Leeds will end up paying around about thirty-five million pounds for for Ruta. And you know, I I said, and I wasn't sort of joking that in Premier League circles now, that is not a massive amount of money, which sounds ridiculous, but for Leeds it is. You know, it's a big sum. It goes beyond what they've spent before. Um, it's up in the bracket where I think they need to be operating if they are going to significantly improve as a team. And you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing him come into the into the side. Looking forward to see what he does, but also looking forward to see where exactly he fits um, and and what Leeds do with him. Because you know, Rodrigo's been scoring goals, and it feels as if with Marsh at the moment very much in favour in that number nine role. I don't think there's any argument at all for dropping Nonto. Ruto can play out wide, very good, good out wide, excellent dribble of the ball, good at take-ons and, and everything else. So does he play in a, a wide role in a front three? It'd be, be pretty interesting to find out. Do you think this might help Rodrigo to an extent, no longer having the, the burden on his shoulders of being the record signing? That I don't know. That I don't know. It, it feels like it's so long ago now that perhaps it's not so much of a, a factor for him, but it's always mentioned, isn't it? I mean, you remember the Brighton game at Ellen Road last season, final home game. And we had that scenario in the first half, Leeds fell behind. And there was a pass that Rodrigo should have made for Harrison that he didn't. And then there was the pass that um, he sent out into straight into touch um, at the point where everything just seemed to be going wrong. And I remember saying in, on the podcast after that game, it isn't working for him and it must be you know, mentally, it must be getting to him. And you said to me, but he's our record signing. You know, he's our record signing. We should be getting more from him than this. He should be doing more. And that's how it is. You know, when, when you're the most expensive player in the squad, that's what people expect of you. And there will be an element of that with um, with Ruta now as well. I think the difference with Ruta is that he's coming in at the age of 20. He's had two seasons with Hoffenheim or, you know, two, two years with Hoffenheim in the Bundesliga prior to that, not a lot of first-team football at Rennes. So he will be seen very much as a prospect and, and a project. With Rodrigo, you felt as if that £27 million should have been buying you the finished article, finished article that was going to slot into the team and, and fire straight away. That didn't happen, but he is scoring goals this season. And and I have to say, I feel as if his influence is on the rise as well. I feel as if his general influence in games is on the rise. It's not just the goals now. I thought he had a decent, a decent evening down at Villa, caused problems in the way that, that most of the attacking players cause problems. And as I say, feels to me like at the moment he is he's Marsh's number nine. And Ruta, he spoke well, didn't he, in the um in the post signing media stuff. Um the one line that jumped out at me, which I thought was quite endearing, was uh, I hope I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so do we so do we, yeah. I think the the biggest thing with him is that he clearly wanted the move and you you automatically on you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you automatically had that thing of people saying, perhaps he's changed his mind, you know, perhaps he's looked at this and said, um, do you remember um Viviani, the player who almost signed from yes. uh, Roma way back in the day? Well, I remember him going to Mansfield for what I think was either a friendly or a cup game. I forget now, it was under hockey day. He was there with two of his um two of his representatives. And I was watching them talking after the game. Leeds lost, did not play well. And there was just something about the conversation that made you feel that they might have all been standing there saying, is this a, is this a good idea? Like, is this for the best? And, and as history shows, he was never never seen again. But Ruther obviously decided that this was the move for him, that it was going to be it was going to be right that he wanted to, to get it done. I can totally understand him saying that, you know, this thing of I, I hope that I'm good because he knows that he'll be, you know, he'll be judged now on the basis of what Leeds have, have played, have paid for him. 
I like what I've seen of him. I like what I've heard of, about him and, and what I've read about him. Um, he looks he looks talented. I think this could be a good deal. A fine young man, to uh, to coin Jesse's phrase. He does look very level-headed, but he also looks extremely confident, particularly on the ball, because delving into his stats, and there's a good stat piece actually on uh, The Athletic, isn't it, that you put out prior to um, him signing with your colleague, whose name escapes me. Uh, Mark Carey. Yep. And it's about his strengths. And, and the one that jumped out at me more than anything was his dribbling. He te- he dribbles yeah. for fun, doesn't he? So on that basis, it's very tempting to look at it because it's a new signing and it's forward to think, right, get him in the middle, play him through the middle, get him in the nine shot or, you know, number nine position, crack on. But actually, I suppose what you have to ask is, do his, do his strengths and his biggest strengths actually lie out wide? And I don't mean as a winger, you know, out and out winger. But in the way that the clubs quite often use wide forwards, say as part of a front three now, and, and Marsh has been leaning more and more towards that. A bit like Nonto, that, really, I guess. Nonto. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, you know, is is that where he's going to be most productive? And I quite like the idea of, you know, Nonto on one side, Rooter on the other. So A, another in the middle, i.e. probably Rodrigo. You know, it's, it it shapes up to be a pretty decent decent and, and aggressive and dangerous attacking line. The, the, the question for Marsh this week, I suppose, will be, does he debut against Brentford at the weekend? He can't play against Cardiff because he didn't play in the original uh, original cup tie, and I think it's quite unlikely, even if he was available for this, that he'd be he'd be rushed into it. But Brentford gives him a full week to train, and, and while you wouldn't necessarily expect Marsh to to bomb him straight into the the starting lineup, temptation will be there, I think, particularly because of how badly Leeds need a result. Hard to ignore when he was signing the uh, the pictures of, of Victor Orta wearing a San Francisco 49ers top. Suppose he was just supporting yes. the 49ers in their in their playoff games. Um, it was wild card weekend, wasn't yep. it? I'm going to pretend that I know anything about the NFL here. And I think they, they wandered the 49ers in that game. I they beat the Seattle Seahawks. Classic win. I, I didn't watch any of it. I must confess, but I did look at the scoreline. It looked fairly fairly clear. Yeah, let's um, let's give all to the benefit of the doubt and say that he had that top <laughs> one because he was supporting them for the night. But it does beg the question of the money and your colleague David Ornstein as well as uh, as mentioned this morning in his roundup of what's going on that um, 49ers, so says his article, are behind the, the funding of this. What's your take on all this now? Well, as I said earlier, that any transfer now because of the, the ownership split um, and the fact that the, the 49ers have this option to buy and, and are kind of proceeding towards a takeover, any transfer that, that happens has to be discussed in those terms. You know, who is paying the money up front? Who is taking on the future payments? What are those future payments going to look like? And and how is that going to affect both the the operations at the club, but also the value of the club, you know, and the amount that, say, the 49ers would, would pay? So I think the fact that they were influential in making sure that this crossed the line and actually really supportive of the deal is a pretty firm indication, you know, again, um, and, and we've had a few of these, but firm indication that... that this takeover is in the pipeline and, and it is coming without me being able to offer any more on, on timescales or, or timing. But yeah, it's, it's crucial that at the moment that everybody supports it. Um, and, you know, that I think having got to this point with the deal, it absolutely had to happen. I mean, for all that, that Otto gets criticism from time to time, if you're a director of football who lines up a, an agreement like this and has the players' representatives over in the, the country, as a Premier League club, 
and a, a credible Premier League club. You want to be seen to be able to do these deals. You know, the last thing you want is to be saying, look, we, we can't quite agree on funding. And don't get me wrong, there, there was a, a limit to what as to what Leeds were going to pay for Ruta. They weren't just going to go to whatever level Hoffenheim forced them to go to. But at the same time, they picked him out as their first choice. He was the striker that they wanted. I think it was incumbent on everybody to make sure that it did get them. And it does start to flesh out that takeover picture a little bit, doesn't it? In that the agreement's in place for January 2024. So presumably, if more money is being put in now, it affects the price that, that is being negotiated at the minute. I think that's that's where the movement can come on your price, your, your final price. Because, as I say, the, the route of transfer, will, the payments for it will be structured. So there'll be an upfront fee of a certain amount, but then it will be structured for, for further payments over the course of his contract. And they will be picked up by whoever is in is in control of the club. So if that happens to be 49ers Enterprises and if they anticipate being in charge at the point where more of those payments kick in, um, then they have to be in agreement that they're happy to fund them and, and everything has to be right. So yeah, um, it's a, a sort of movable feast in that sense. And there's still a lot of noise around a midfielder. Azadine Unahi is the one that we mentioned uh, previously on the show. He's the one that's been talked about mostly, as you said, in recruitment circles, Phil. Do you think they're going to do this one, or do you think they're just maybe going to bide the time a little bit and see how things unfold? Because we saw a, a tweet, it was Fabrizio Romano um, in the last 24, 48 hours, um, just suggesting that things were in the balance there. I think there's still to decide on on where they're going to go with it. No doubt at all that they do like Unahi at um, Angers, but his value has changed significantly either side of the World Cup. He, he was a kind of eight, 10, 12 million pound player prior to the World Cup. You're now talking 2025, um, which is the kind of premium that that you tend to get when you have a, a particularly good tournament, um, as he did. It is possible. It's possible. They are active on that front. They have been in touch. They are looking at it. But there will, of course, be the, the question of funding. Um, I think there is still the option that they sit tight and say, look, in this window, we really wanted the left back, which we you know, got after a fashion in Verba and we wanted to forward. We've got Ruter and, and broken the, the club transfer record for that. Equally, it might be towards the end of the window that they think to themselves, another midfielder would not hurt um, and, and they decide to do it. You've seen before in these circumstances that leads from time to time will wait until the latter stages um, to see what, what else changes. So I wonder if that's how it's going to go Again, but then, it, then again, you know, there isn't that much of the window left, and that's always the thing with January. The month shoots by, so you've kind of got to you've got to take your choices, haven't you? What do you reckon? I think it'd be a mistake to not bring in another body in midfield, particularly with Mateus Click going out, because we still really only have Rocker and Adams in there in a sort of senior sense. Wouldn't it not make sense to have three competing for those two positions if they can afford to do it? I certainly think it would help, um, and I think if they can afford to do it, then then it would make sense. It felt to me as if Cleek was never going, from this point onwards, was never going to be that regularly used under Marsh. I know he was in the mix and I know he's in the squad and on the bench, but it it, it seemed to be a bit of a sort of, I don't know if emergency substitution would be fair, but Cleek more often than not seemed to be involved at the points where Leeds needed something to turn around or, or something to, to happen. So I, I think when all said and done, moving on to take that chance at DC United is is for the best. But I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it leaves them with huge options in midfield. Um, I think another body there would help. But obviously, on top of the money that's been paid for Ruter and, and Verber, um, you can't pretend that the Unahi fee is insignificant. Did you see the interview that uh, Clicky's done in his uh, initial sort of post-signing over, yes. uh, over in Washington? Did you see the, uh, the phrasing of, in response to the question, what did Marsh mean by being more Clicky? And he was, he was talking about 
perhaps the team being a little braver in possession, which does actually stack up, doesn't it? You want to see him take control of games that little bit more. But he also kind of, there was just a tiny little dig towards the end of it. Did you see his quotes? Yeah, it was something along the lines of uh, not just be brave, but he also said, I think he wanted me to go a little bit too. So perhaps he meant that. Clicky, uh, clicky just been a bit mischievous. Been Clicky being clicky, I guess. I don't think there was any doubt that Cleek could see that he was peripheral under Marsh. And I don't think even the Marsh talking about how important he was and, and how influential he could be and how much they needed him. I, I don't think it changed the fact that it felt like Marsh was leaning towards other players. I, I just think this makes sense, particularly because of the the, the opportunity that Cleek had over in Washington. Um, he's at the right time of life to, to go and give that a crack. And I don't think it's in his interest or likely to benefit or was likely to benefit anybody for him to sit spending another half season playing the odd minutes here and there. Um, it's not enough for him. It clearly isn't enough for him. I think this I think this is sensible. Well, we'll see what happens with the uh, the midfielder over the remaining course of the window, Phil. Immediate attention, obviously, on Ellen Rhodes on Wednesday night, Cardiff in the Cup. And as you mentioned, they're in part one, have sacked their boss, um, Neil Warnock, for a comeback. I did see the one that was linked, yeah. Who'd have, who'd have thought? And there was me starting to think that it's been that long since we've seen him in the game that he must actually have um, must actually have retired. They've they've had a tough season, Cardiff. Um, they're only just above the bottom three in the championship, and um, the form clearly clearly wasn't good under Mark Hudson, and and that's how it tends to go very rapidly in the championship when it's not when it's not working out. I think. From Marsh's perspective, he's, he's he's got to handle this slightly carefully because it's a game he needs to win, uh, and he'll he'll know that. But at the same time, he's got to factor in the the game against Brentford on Sunday as well. I, I would expect Leeds to be slightly stronger than they were down at Cardiff because the injury list shouldn't be so bad. I wonder if this would be an absolutely prime opportunity to get more minutes into somebody like Bamford, for example. But it you know home crowd. Home game, home tie against a team who are 21st in the championship and have no manager or, or at this stage have no manager. It, um, we know how this goes. It, 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 is that winnable? I think it's winnable. If ever there was a winnable game, this is it. And that's what terrifies me, Phil. No, I'm not terrified by this. We should embrace it, shouldn't we? The opportunity to have um, a winnable FA Cup fourth round tie next. And then yes. you never know if, you know, if that if that goes in our favour and we don't lead to that one in, then um, you never know what the fifth round is going to bring. A lot of teams have gone out, but... Um, yeah, let's just get through this one first. Let's get through this one. Yeah, I think so. And that's how Marsh will be looking at it as well. I don't I don't doubt that he'll know that Wednesday's important, to use your phrase, from an optics perspective. <laughs> but the big game this week is really Sunday, isn't it? Without a doubt. And we will speak about that game towards the uh, the back end of the week when we do the, the Friday show. We'll reassemble then the athletic.com forward slash leads pod to read all the things that Phil and I have been talking about today the the articles on The Athletic including that stats piece on Jorginho Ruta and um, presumably there's going to be plenty more coverage of him on there banging in his first goals at the weekend against Brentford for sure for sure right Phil we'll catch up later on in the week we'll see you soon The Phil Hay Show 